today's lecture, Tim Haig is teaching on Parashah 141, which covers Deuteronomy 20 verse 10 through 21 and verse 9. These lectures were recorded during Shabbat service at Beit Hillel Messianic Synagogue in Tacoma, Washington. During these sessions, Tim usually reads through his own written commentary on the passage at hand and then takes some time to make personal application or expound on a topic or point. Sermons delivered at Beit Hillel are interactive teachings where questions and comments are added by members of the community. This makes for a very lively discussion. If you would like a copy of Tim's written commentary to follow along, you can find a link in the show notes and download them. Once you've done that, grab your Bible and a pen, and let's get started with the teaching. It's interesting that the scriptures that we read outline very clearly not only the grace of the Lord and the beauty of His creation, but outline very carefully and describe very carefully the fallenness of this world. When our text starts out by saying, when you wage war. Yeah. And there was and has been destruction ever since the fall of man in the garden. It starts with a murder of a brother, and it continues on. Why is that? If the evolutionists were even half clearly right, or let's say one hundredth of one percent right, which they're not, we would have to come to the conclusion that eventually we would progress to the point where we would no longer need war. Well, war would be obliterated, obliterated, right? I mean, we wouldn't have it anymore. They believe that, well, no one's ever told me that they believe that. <laughs> Evolution is based upon survival of the fittest. Well, they're conflicted the first time they say that they're an evolutionist, but at any rate. Um, and why is that? You say, well, Tim, are you just on a rampage against evolution? No, not really. The scriptures teach us that built within each one of us as created beings is a sense of God's existence. For everything that is in the created world proves that there is, a, and they're without excuse who say that there's no creator, right? How, how can they be without excuse if they haven't been given the truth? They say, well, they, they haven't read the Bible. They don't have to read the Bible. They can look at the creation. The invisible things of God are known by those things which created, even His eternal Godhead. According to Paul in chapter 1 of Romans, is the Bible right? So there's a sense in, with, in which every atheist is lying to himself or herself. No one will be able to stand before God and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know. There was no way for me to know. This is why it's so important for us to recognize the first two chapters of Genesis as foundational for our faith. Now I know there's all kinds of different approaches. There are people who are 
truly believers in the Lord who hold some form of so-called theistic evolution. Um, but the reality is, is that our world is not getting better and better. I remember the first time my dad, when I was talking about first buying a car, of course I didn't have any money. I was in high school, but I was saving my money and I ended up buying for $200 a, an old Chevy um, that needed a lot of work. But at any rate, um, I thought to myself, why not buy a new car? And my father said, as soon as you drive it off the lot, you will have lost thousands of dollars. Why? Shouldn't it get better and better? Shouldn't everything just get better and better? You say, well, Tim, this is kind of a pessimistic way of looking at life. No, I, I hope it's not pessimistic. I hope it's realistic. Ultimately, in a time when Yeshua has returned and the old heavens and earth have been done away with and the new heavens and earth have been created, there will be no sin in that new heaven and that new earth. And things will be the way God intends them to be. It's hard for us to even envision that or to consider it, isn't it? There's some things about the way our system works in this fallen world that we enjoy. I've thought to myself, what will eternity be without babies? Babies are a great joy. We see that little toddler starting, starting to walk. Are we going to grow up in eternity? Are we going to get older? Will there be babies? I don't know. God hasn't told us. But I know this for sure. It will be everything God intends it to be. And that means there will be nothing in it that will be contrary to his person, to his being. Death will be no more. However he's going to do that, I don't know. But if he could speak and the universe came into existence, then most certainly he can make an eternity in which there will be no end. So here we are on a day where we're kind of looking back and with some sadness and sorrow. The destruction that happened at 70 in the destruction of the temple. Uh, we don't, I think, understand the, the immensity of what took place there. The terribleness that took place in the more, much more recent Holocaust and the lives that were taken and slaughtered. And we look at our world around us and we say, can we really be joyful? No, I'm not teaching a lesson today of morbidity, of just saying, oh, woe is us, we have nothing good. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that in this world of fallenness, God has given us something that cannot be taken away. And that is a solid and sure hope in who we are in the Messiah Yeshua. And there is coming a day when he will return and he will take us unto himself and we will forever be with the Lord. And what do the scriptures say about that phrase? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In the midst of fallenness, there is joy. There is deep-seated reality in the truth of who God is and what Yeshua has done for us. 
And if we can know anything for certain, we can know that. Because there's as much or more uh, evidence for Yeshua's death and resurrection and his ascension on high. And the book that we have, which we know as the Bible, there's more evidence for its reality than, than really any other piece of literature in human history. If we can know anything by evidence, we know this for sure. God has sent his son. He has died for those who would be saved. He rose again on the third day, just as he said. He showed himself alive to hundreds of people, some of whom who wrote it down and gave us the record. And he ascended on high and he said that he would return and take us unto himself. So while we rightly consider the mistakes that are made, even in our own personal life, you know, on Tisha B'Av, we look back and say, we were punished because as a nation, we were so rebellious against God, but we can bring it down to a personal level. What is it that is in my life that needs to change? What is there in my life that, that the Lord uh, wants done away with? What must I pick back up that I dropped and shouldn't have? How is my prayer life? How is my growing in understanding who God is and who I am in Him? These are the kinds of things that come to us on a day like today. So, as Israel prepared herself to enter the land in this fallen world and wage war against the inhabitants, God prescribes laws for proper battle. Isn't that interesting? This is clearly at the odds with the perspective of many other cultures, ancient and modern, which essentially teach that all moral and ethical standards are sus suspended in the arena of battle, right? All is fair in love and war. That's not true. All is not fair. God gave rules. For Israel, however, clear standards of ethics were prescribed by God through Moses for engagement in battle against her enemies. It is, in fact, the influence of the Torah upon the modern nations, which have been founded upon a Judeo-Christian ethic, that has established rules of engagement in our modern times. Those of you in the military, you know this well. Even in the midst of war, we are to, be remember, we are to remember that life is precious and that there are always innocent victims of war. Even in war, there is rules of ethics. In stark contrast to the lack of any adherence to ethics in war that clearly characterizes modern-day Islamic terrorist regimes, the same inhumane perspective fueled by the Nazi regime of World War II. While we may at times wonder about military courts that convene to judge the ethical behavior of our soldiers in the midst of battle, the very presence of such courts distinguishes civilized nations from those which remain barbaric. And it is the foundational teaching of the Torah that has established this difference. If you read about war in, uh, in the ancient Near East, you know that there were no rules. One of the things in the ancient Near East that was common, especially of the uh, Assyrians, uh, as well as the Babylonians, is that they, they won many uh, uh, conflicts by fear. They would so brutalize the villages that they over that they took over, that they conquered. And they would make their brutalization so well known in advance that other villages would simply pack up and leave. 
That's, that's a society that has not been touched by the revelation of who God is and as creator of mankind in his image. Nobody likes war, or at least nobody should. Nobody likes the devastation of war, and in a fallen world there is war. And God recognizes this, and he, in our Torah portion, says, there's still, even in the worst of times in human existence, there are rules, there is ethics. We must remain who we are, created in the image of God, even when we must fight others. In the opening of Roshah, the rules for attacking a city outside of the land are given. Essentially, when Israel's armies approach a city that is far off, they were to first offer the city peace. If the city accepted the offer, the people could become the servants of Israel and were afforded the rights prescribed by the Torah for a slave or servant. If they refused the offer of peace and battle ensued, all of the men, those that could form a potential armed rebellion in the future, were to be executed, but the women and children were to be spared. Likewise, the cattle and goods of the city were to be taken as the spoils of war. A different injunction is given, however, for the fortified cities that were in the land itself, those which were near. These Canaanite cities were not to be afforded a peaceable surrender, but were to be utterly destroyed and no person left alive. You know, this is one text that people have, I've had people bring it to me and say, look, the God that you worship is a monster. Well, when we read this, we, are, we, we gasp a little bit, bit of air, don't we? We go, <gasps> but think about the flood. Out of all of the populations on earth, eight were saved. At whose hand did that come about? Again, one thing that we learn from this passage is the God that we serve and the God that we worship is a holy, righteous God. And he, as we say in our liturgy, which is a quote directly from uh, Genesis 14, I believe, he is the owner of everything. I've told the story again, but it is an illustration. My roommate in college, who was and is an excellent artist, made a wonderful nice drawing of Beethoven, and it, it was exquisite. He gave it to someone, and that someone didn't like it and gave it back. And when I came into the room, he was tearing it to pieces. I said, Ron, I wanted that. He looked at me with straight face and said, I made it, I can do with it as I wish. The Creator has the right to do with His creation according to His purposes. And it reminds us that he is a holy God whose wrath comes against unrighteousness. And we see this best where? In the cross. His own son given to pay the penalty for our sin. So these Canaanite cities were not to be afforded a peaceable surrender, but were to be utterly destroyed and no person left alive. Our text lists six nations. While Deuteronomy 7 adds a seventh, the Girgashites, the primary, and it may well be that the six that are in our uh, text included the Girgashites as part of that nation. The primary reason given for the destruction of these nations is that their demonic religions would inevitably influence Israel to disregard God and follow in their abominable, pra abominable practices. 
So much for coexist, I guess. If God is the director, then he has the right to do as he wishes. History proved this to be a reality. Our text in verse 18 speaks of the abhorrent things that they have done for their gods. So he votes. Often this phrase refers to child sacrifice and occultist practices. It should be noted that it is the abhorrent practices that call for such extreme measures against the Canaanite cities, not merely stated beliefs. I hope it would never come to this, but I wonder what would happen in our nation if people decided some devilish, occultish religion began to sacrifice children. Do you think our nation would stand for it? Yes, the first step is abortion. When we take the life of an unborn child and do so with impunity, it opens the door to the worst, the worst of things. Now, I'm not saying that this would come to it, but I'm saying that life is sacred and it ought to be maintained as sacred. And in, our, in the erosion of our own nation's mores, we're on, a, we're on a very dangerous path. The sages themselves, the rabbis, struggled with the extreme measures prescribed against the cities of the land. They understood our Pashan parallel text to still hold a conditionality. According to some of the sages, if the Canaanite cities were willing to submit to the Noachide laws, they were to be spared. The Noachide laws don't even show up until much, 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 much later. It is understandable why teachers and scholars throughout the ages have struggled with the divine command to entirely wipe out all living persons in a city. This goes contrary to our own sense of fairness and the high sanctity for life prescribed everywhere in the Torah. Yet the text is quite clear, and no matter of explanation contrary to its clear meaning can be derived from it. What does this tell us about God and tell us about ourselves? First, it makes a very strong statement about God's hatred for idolatry and all of the things it brings with it. Idolatry is thus entirely contrary to God's plan for his people and fully thwarts the Almighty's intentions for how his chosen people should live. Secondly, it seems reasonable to conclude that in some cases, idolatry becomes so ingrained in a culture that the only way to rid oneself of that idolatry is to entirely forsake it or have no contact with it. Such leads to a third application. God knows that to whatever extent we allow an idolatrous culture to become our culture, to that extent we will succumb to idolatry itself. You think, well, that, we would, that could never happen. Idolatry takes all kinds of forms. Okay, Idolatry is when we give our life, energy, and concerns, and honor to that which is other than God. We fool ourselves if we think that we can make certain aspects of pagan culture our own and not have it affect our souls. Now, don't get me wrong. Throughout the history of the world, there have been those who have lived in very pagan, idolatrous cultures who shown as lights in the midst of it and did not give in to it. So just because we live in a culture doesn't mean it has to pull us into its ideas and its beliefs. We only need to pause and consider the outcome of Israel's history to see how this works. In the conquest of the land, Israel did not follow the commands of our text. 
She allowed many of the pagan nations to remain and even intermarried with them. As a result, they became a snare to Israel and led her into a mixing of pagan worship with that prescribed for her by God. And the result of this mixing was her final demise from the land and her exile into the lands of her enemies. Which is exactly what we remember on this day of Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. But there is more in our text which reveals the true nature of God. He not only hates idolatry, but he also loves justice. Even in the terrible events of war, he intends that his people act with justice and sincerity. It was common in the ancient times for invading armies to entirely destroy the lands they conquered. Often this came as a result of cutting the trees, salting the fields, and following the whales. As a result, after the invasion was complete, the land was worthless and would go for centuries before by natural cycles. The pollution of the invasion was neutralized and the land was once again able to support life. They would plow salt into all of the fields. If you're a farmer and you know what happens when there's all kinds of salt in your ground, it doesn't work well for planting crops. Hashem's instructions to Israel, however, included something as insignificant, so to speak, as not cutting the food-bearing trees as they besieged a city. The tree was not to be put on the same level as an enemy warrior. It had been created by God to sustain life and was therefore to be cared for even in the heat of war and battle. This is because there is a clear attachment of God's purpose to the land. It is his land and he intends for his vassal, his king, which is Israel, to take care of it for him. This then gives us yet another glimpse of the God we serve and worship. He cares for physical realities as worthy of his great concern and guardianship. What a contrast. Trees are to be preserved, but the people who tended them are destroyed. What do we learn from this? That trees are more important than people? Some would say yes in our day. But that's not what we learn in the scriptures. What we learn is God's intolerance of idolatry is absolute. We're extending our 25% off sale on the book, How We Got Our Bible by Tim Haig, through the end of July with the coupon code 2021HOW. Have you ever wondered how the Bible was put together? The Bible we have now is the final form of what took millennia to write and compile. These 66 books that we receive as canon are the result of a long history of God's people living with and accepting the Word of God as it was delivered by His prophets and apostles. But what do we know about this history? Where did it all begin and how did it unfold? Much of this history is speculative, at least in terms of its ancient settings, but the Bible itself contains much of this history and we are, therefore, able to piece together a reasonable estimation of how this process unfolded. In the book, How We Got Our Bible, Tim Hegg looks at the formation of the Tanakh or the Old Testament and the Apostolic Scriptures or the New Testament, including introductory matters of textual criticism, manuscript history, canonization, inspiration, and translation. Get a copy today for your personal library or as a gift for family and friends. That's How We Got Our Bible by Tim Haig and Softcover on sale for 25% off with the coupon code 2021HOW through July 31st. That's coupon code 2021HOW, 2021HOW, all in lowercase, 2021HOW. Learn how we got the Bible in the form that we have it today with Tim Hegg's book, How We Got Our Bible. Other options available in this product are 11 audio sessions with Tim teaching through each chapter of the book, 
In these lectures, Tim adds extra commentary and explanations as he takes the students through the material. Okay, now let's get back into our Torah study. The only way that we can appreciate and even worship God in His holiness is to know for certain that all of His holiness has been satisfied by the death of His Son for us. It doesn't mean in any way that we then give into anything that we want. No. It's when we come to recognize how He has loved us, to what great extent He has loved us by giving us His Son, that we begin to hate sin that way He does. We don't hate sinners. We must not. We have the message of the gospel. We have the message of hope. God has given us a great opportunity to share his love and mercy with people everywhere. And it's the more that we come to recognize this, that we recognize what a great salvation we have. The tree was created for mankind to give him food, but mankind was created for God to give him glory. As long as the tree performs its creative task, it is worthy and should be allowed to remain. But when man has turned from his creative purpose and rather worships the creature rather than the creator, God gives them up to their own devices and their inevitable demise, according to Romans chapter 1. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is a very, very unpopular message, isn't it? In our times. Our culture would want us to receive everyone as they are without thinking that there needs to be any changes, right? Well, we must receive them as created in the image of God, all of us, having therefore an equality. But we have the message of the truth, of the gospel in Yeshua, and we must be willing to live it and to speak it, that others might know. This attribute of justice is found emphasized once again in the part of our text which describes the procedure of dealing with a homicide in which the murderer is not found. Here there is need to make a clear de declaration of innocence. Those elders of the city closest to the place where the corpse is found must undergo a ritual in which the blood of a sacrificial animal, slain in the field as the victim was, is shed in the field and the elders of the city wash their hands over the slain heifer. This is no doubt symbolic of the confession that the elders have nothing to do at all with the slaying of the person, and that they, as the representatives of the city, maintain the innocence of the city in regard to the murder. It must also emphasize the fact that they have no knowledge of the murder or of the one who committed the crime. Thus, though the murder cannot be avenged through justice of the court, the city itself confesses innocence to the whole matter. There's a principle that we find here from the scriptures it's a principle that we probably could never fully implement, but we would, should strive to do so, and it is that the elders of a city ought to be trustworthy. If the elders of the city, if the elders of the city are themselves complacent in the, the, the murder, then they can't be trusted when they go out and say, we know nothing about it. How do we elect it? 
officials. <laughs> and know that they're trustworthy. That's a tough one, isn't it? That is a tough one. Because we know that old adage that authority corrupts and ultimate authority ultimately corrupts. There is, uh, there, hopefully there are some checks and balances even in our own uh, governmental system that we're able to find those who are trustworthy to be judges in our culture, in our cities and so forth. Did I see a hand? Yes, Mike. On what you said that uh, the congregation is to approach the world with an attitude of love, that could that possibly be tempered with uh, those that are like warned against in Jude and elsewhere to uh, keep these people out of the congregation? They're blots on your feasts. They're clouds without. Nothing. Nothing. My short answer is this, Mike. There's nothing in this world that can say we don't have to love, Uh because love is both tough and gentle. We're willing to speak the truth and to speak the truth in love, even to our enemies. Mm-hmm. We leave our we leave the outcome of that to God. And about God's holiness, I'm, I hope we're all right there. But is you know, well out in the world, it's uh, you know God's this giant smorgasbord chef to, in the sky. Anybody can come in and take a little piece of this and that, and says, right. "Oh, you think you know God's." Uh, this cooked asparagus. Well, that's cool. I think God's this roast beef. Fine, you know, just come in and get what you want. Yeah, it's all one, man. You know, be cool. And where does that all begin? Where does that mentality begin? It begins with the mentality that the Bible is not the primary source oh, of knowing wow. God. It's just one way among many. Yeah. As soon as we give up on the scriptures, we really have nothing to stand upon, right? Then it becomes whatever this person, that person, or whomever. Um, has decided. So what is the point? Murder, the taking of an innocent life, simply cannot go unattended or without due process, at least to the extent possible. We may therefore reason that whenever a society begins to look upon murder as something acceptable, that society has given up the standard of justice which the Lord himself reveals. In this regard, we should consider our society's views of abortion. The murder of innocent children and the manner in which this is considered not only acceptable, but the sure right of every woman or man. The same may be said of the move toward euthanasia. And we see the consequences of this acceptance of murder, the devaluation of life itself, so that violence continues to rise and random taking of life is viewed by a new generation of Americans as almost something that is expected. Once again, it is the message of who God is and his gracious teaching, the Torah, which leads us in the life he has designated for us. Such a life is both to his glory and to our happiness. The Haftarah was chosen by the rabbis to accompany our Torah text because it focuses upon the history of the conquest and the victories God gave to Israel over the inhabitants of the land. It also includes Joshua's exhortation to entirely turn away from anything that is connected to idolatry and to serve the Lord with wholeness of heart. His declaration at the end of our Haftarah is a model for every head of household. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
The apostolic portion also emphasizes the wholehearted devotion to God that should characterize all of us who have been redeemed by God's grace. And let me say this, I don't think any, as Paul said, I have not yet arrived. I'm not yet complete. We're all of us in this journey of becoming more and more what God intends us to be. Don't you agree? So I'm not saying, well, there's a standard you have reached and now you're there and boy, you know, way to go. Now you can relax. No, I'm not saying that whatsoever. I'm saying that in each of our lives, God intends us to become more and more conformed to the image of his son. Why is it that the world, the ungodly ways of rebellious mankind, continue to attract the attention of God's children? Why would John have to exhort us not to love the world? The answer is that remaining in us all is the sinful nature that is a friend to the world. Only through God's grace and the strength of his spirit are we enabled to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live lives set apart to him. But we must actively engage in this battle. You cannot rely and relax. You must rely and you must fight. You must rely and you must be diligent. You must rely and you must wrestle. We must learn to submit to the spirit and to resist the evil one. We must make it our habit to say yes to God and to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The ability to do this, to say no to what God hates and to say yes to what he loves, is the privilege of all who are born again by his spirit and who have been forgiven of all their sins. It is in fact the love of God learned by the heart of the one who has been uh, rescued that produces the desire to say yes to him. We love him. We love, and some of the texts say him, but most of them just say we love. We have the capacity to love as God intends because he first loved us. The more we realize what God has done for us through his son Yeshua, the more we are motivated to love him by obeying him and sanctifying his name in every way, as we read in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Okay, Kit, did you have a comment? I don't know who has the microphone. Sorry. Do you think that okay? Do, do you think that uh, this this taking a city and making them slaves is possibly a fulfillment of Genesis nine, where where Noah curses Canaan and said he'd be the lowest of slaves? I I, I think in in very general terms. But it's very difficult to trace genealogies from from an early, early ancestor, you know, all the way through. Oftentimes, cultures were blended together in ways that were. But I think, in a general sense, yes. It it seemed it seemed to me like, you know, when when Noah did the curse, it was in the land. Yeah. And but, this is talking about a city outside the land, the land. I think so. It, it didn't seem to fit, but I thought yeah. of it. I, and again, I think you have you have a, a, a widening of that whole prophecy by the fact that you have an intermarriage of of all, all uh, of offspring. Yes. Good. So I was um, as I was reading the Torah portion last night and then this morning again, I was trying to think. It seems kind of esoteric. It seems strange that 
there's this dead man or dead person in the middle of nowhere, and they have to measure to the closest city. And then the leadership, the religious leadership, is okay. to take and do this ceremony. This is because this city on this side and this city on this side, both of the, all the elders say, we don't want anything to do with it. It's your problem. No, it's not. It's your problem. God said, before you ever have to deal with that, just measure it. The one that's closest has to do it. And then the leadership is then free of guilt. It seems like they're not even connected to this, this They have murder. to take a vow over blood that they are free of it. And you have to remember that in ancient Israel, taking a vow was considered far more dangerous than it is today. It had greater, deeper meaning. You bet. Because if you were found to, to, to take a vow and that it was a false vow, that was it. So is there an application for today? In terms of, I mean, there are murders that take place throughout the world yeah. where there's no accountability of who have done it this and authorities this, yeah. and so on. This relates particularly to Israel and the land, but the application is that if a society has leaders, elders, whatever you want to call them, who are the judges, who make decisions, who decide who is guilty and who is innocent, and they themselves are complicit in evil doing, you have a society that will fail. If you have a government that is unrighteous, and 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 re, and re, and the, yeah, and not all murders can be solved. You're right; the evidence may not be there, but they are the ones that must make the decision. It, in other words, it it does away with mob uh, decisions. So, an animal, a, a beast of burden, uh, namely a heifer, its neck is broken. Right. So no, no blood is shed, but its neck is no, broken. No, it says that, that they should take a they should take an uh, uh, wash their hands over the dead animal, which would indicate that there's blood. If you break a heifer's um, neck, I guarantee you there's going to be blood. So is that a euphemism for slitting his throat? It's not a euphemism. It's simply a violent death in the field. That's the picture. It's a violent death in the field of a living being. They take an oath over that, that body, that animal, saying, we are not, we know nothing about this. We know nothing about who did it. And so they then are compelled to find evidence one way or the other of who did it. So then what becomes of that animal? Does it doesn't it, say. It doesn't say. Who provides that animal? I would imagine that the elders of the city have to provide it. Yeah, the people of the city. But does that mean by way of taxes? <laughs> How much do we provide? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the tradition is is that that the elders were given um, animals uh, by the city to do that, and they maintained the animals and so forth and so on. But we don't know for sure. Okay, I saw more hands. Okay. So, um, you know, I always think of like the Kohanim, like in the temple regions. I know they're probably spread out a little bit too, but it says they were to come down to the city. Right. So when you're talking about cities way up north or way down south, right. this is a big affair. Yes, absolutely. You almost have like the royal entourage going out to right. the judges and everything. Right. When someone is murdered in a field, 
it has to be dealt with. It cannot be just say, well, too bad. Yeah. yeah. This is kind of touching on what Bugs was talking about, about uh, cities being enslaved. I, uh, I know there's other translations that say put the tribute or whatever, right, I think? Yeah. For well, that, that, like, uh, you should put the tri- city the tribute. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's enslaved is too hard of a word. Something tells me they would just likely lay a levy upon the city as opposed to setting taskmasters up and, and marching them out of there to go dig well, ditches or something. The, the word that's used in the Hebrew could be taken either way, and it seems in the context that they are enslaved. But would it's tribute a much, is a slave? Yeah, it, it's so. it's it, a slave has a bad connotation in our in our uh, society, and rightly so. But it can simply mean that they become your workers, right? And it doesn't say that you can't compensate them. You give them life, you give them food, you give them what they need as they work for you. Well, so they, they become yeah. workers. Well, but, they become a client yeah. state, but they yeah. probably. Right. A tribute yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And uh, and right over here. Does it say what happens to those elders if they washed their hands and said they knew nothing about it and then was found out later they did? If they, uh, according to just general Torah law, if they were able to apprehend the murderer or to stop the murderer and didn't do it, they are complicit and they are therefore equally guilty of murder. So, although it doesn't say it explicitly, it would seem to me that they would receive a capital punishment. Isn't it amazing how practical the Torah is? <laughs> you say, well, it's not quite practical in our situation because we don't have cities like this that, you know, we're conquering, whatever. But the enduring principle of God's holiness, of God's way, is what we take away from this text. Yes. Even then, in our current society, that's based on you know the Bible in yeah, a lot of ways. Right. We have cities, and we have limits to those cities. And when there is a murder that happens in those cities, it's oh, yeah, that's your precinct. That's right. your situation. Right. You got to deal with. And we still do have laws that if a government official is found out is you know is um, seen to be guilty of a crime, he, he's supposed to he or she is supposed to uh, be treated with regard to the law in that crime. Now, granted, if you have cronies in the situa- in the, in the, in the uh, system that are going to find a way to get you out of it, that's a whole no- that then there's complicit uh, involvement by numbers of officials. But still, um, you know, even it's not too far in our past memory where we found uh, where there were those high officials that were found to be doing something that was illegal and they paid the penalty for it. Did I hear you say satisfy his holiness? Yes. No, satisfy. Was that the word? Yes. Would you explain that, please? Well, if I can put it in very concrete terms, if someone, if, if I say, let's just use this scenario, someone backs into my car, puts a dent in it, and I say, I have the right to, that you should fix this. He says, absolutely, you're right. Okay. So we go to the collision place and we say 
how much is it going to cost? Says, we can fix that for $500. Say, okay, it's going to cost you $500 since you backed into my car. He said, fine. He takes the $500 out, gives, puts it in my hand. Am I satisfied? Okay. So God's holiness was satisfied for the, what is the penalty for sin? The wages of sin is death. And it had to be a death that was of infinite value, which is the only life that had infinite value is the Messiah Yeshua. So, yeah. So the satisfaction of God's justice is a significant part of our redemption. He doesn't say to us, well, he paid most of it, but you've got to pay some more. Uh-uh. No. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He's satisfied, right? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in the Messiah Yeshua. His justice has been satisfied. I can, I can imagine, too. I mean, yeah, I have, you know, I don't know what the equivalent price would be of a heifer, but, you know, I can imagine whatever city it's closer to and kept having lots of murders out there. Besides, yeah. besides it satisfying God's justice, it also puts a pinch on the people. So it's like, yeah. I don't know, they got to get a posse together to set up right. defense squads to go out and start yeah. patrolling or something. Yeah. This is the second one we've had in three months. Yeah, this like, can't happen anymore. Yeah, we got to start. We, gotta we start don't have any more heifers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. Oftentimes when it costs us uh, our, from our own pocketbook, we stop to think about what can we do about this. Um, I think the the clan connectedness, like the group solidarity that this points to is interesting because, yes. you know, like you were saying, you can't just say it wasn't me, it wasn't me, and everyone go on. Yeah. Something still needs to be done about it. Right. It's There's a it's a messed up sacrifice. Yeah. It's a waste. Yes. It's not by the right, the normal method, the location is weird. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, I don't know, it seems to me that that's the Lord saying, this situation is not the way it should be. Right. There's a problem here. Yep. And, you know, that there's, it's not just a problem for even the elders, but like the whole, the whole town. It's a problem for the whole town. Sure. So, well, there's a family in the city that's grieving, you know, that has lost a loved one. May not be part of that city, but there, but there's a family somewhere in a city that is, you know. So again, it's it's that whole um, unification of a clan. Yeah. Yeah. Or or even if it was a traveler passing through who no That's one true. knows. That's true. Blood still pollutes the yep. land. That's right. Very good. Good point. We hope you found this discussion helpful in your Torah studies for this week. Our mission at Torah Resource is to provide biblically-based education for disciples of Yeshua. If you would like more information about Torah Resource or to browse our product catalog and free resources, please go to TorahResource.com. To download a free triennial Torah portion reading schedule, please check the show notes for this episode. Thank you again for listening to the podcast, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this resource with your family and friends. And be sure to join us next week as we study through the Torah with Tim Hague.